Hello and welcome to the Drums Leadership Lessons, a podcast that aims to speak to advertising and media professionals from all around the world and find out how they view their management and aim to motivate the people they work with and find out a bit more about the leaders that they have learned from and looked up to. I am Stephen Leptak, editor of The Drum and your host for this series. This episode, I speak to Havas Creative Network Global CEO, Chris Hurst, who has also just written his first book, uh, No Bullshit Leadership, which is available on Amazon now. On Amazon and all good booksellers, let me tell you. All uh, good booksellers? Yeah, yeah well, if, it's, if it's not there, it's not a good bookseller. That's are, the... are there many of those left? Uh, there, are, uh, there, are, there are some. Airport terminals. Okay, and yes, we were talking just uh, just before starting about. I, I read this book on the way to South by Southwest earlier this year. I managed to get through it all, and so I wanted to follow up. And thank you for joining me, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. So, you've a lot of experience in this area. <laughs> Uh, I guess I do, yeah. I, I mean, I suppose part... Well, yes. But... <laughs> Don't but, say but, No, no. But, but it's, a, it's a serious point because actually the, the, our premise in the book actually is right. that, uh, that the people we, we think about when we think about leaders, uh-huh. um, like uh, generals or, or FTSE 100 CEOs, or I mean, we used to maybe politicians, possibly less so now, mm. most leaders aren't those people. Uh, and my premise is that anybody that has anybody who has people they are responsible for is a leader. Whether you, whether that's three people, whether that's a, a ward in a hospital, whether that's a Sunday league football team, you could consider yourself as a leader. And I think actually, a lot of people in those positions don't consider themselves as leaders. Mm-hmm. And it's in their interest and our interest that they do. So, first question is uh, pretty pretty good segue. What does leadership mean to you then? Uh, Well, I I thought quite a lot about this. I'll give you my definition of leadership. Mm -hmm. I I think leadership is about taking a group of people, and it's always people, taking a group of people from a defined point in the present to a different and clearly defined point in the future. That's it. And so why write a book about it? Well, I've written a book about it because I think that there's a whole... I think the leadership industrial complex uh, that is making a lot of money and that could be business schools that could be training courses that could be consultants that could be books making a lot of money from making it seem very complicated and my premise is that leadership is very very difficult but it definitely isn't complicated and I think by a, a lot of what people are being sold is frankly bullshit it's snake oil um, and that causes two problems I think firstly People who are already in leadership positions, and as I just said, that's quite a lot of people, it inhibits their ability to fulfill their potential. And secondly, potentially even worse, or more importantly, it excludes a whole rafts of people from thinking leadership could ever be for them because they didn't go to the right school or they don't have the right accent or whatever, all those other things that that can get in the way. And what do you think people reading the book will take away from it? What would be the core takeaway? Well, it's difficult for me to it's difficult for me to answer what what other people will think. I, what what I hope, hope what yeah. I hope is that people will f- will 
understand uh, well first of all we'll feel uh i hate the word empowered i try very hard in forty-five thousand words not to use it i think i do a couple of times but we'll feel empowered because they will understand that point that actually you know what leadership isn't complicated yes it's difficult there are some there are some relatively uh, straightforward concepts I think you can understand that will help you be a better leader there it, it is possible to uh, break leadership down into a number of component parts which, which which doesn't encompass all of it but by doing some of those pieces well or even just understanding those pieces better um, you can uh, you can lead and you can be a better leader so it's you know it, it's it's a book that I think it's difficult to encapsulate the entirety of it in a soundbite because I think leadership isn't a soundbiteable uh, subject but um, that's why it 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 is actually a book that you could, that is that doesn't have a narrative from start to finish it has a number of clearly distinct sections and you can dip in and out of those sections depending on which piece you think is most interesting. Mm-hmm. Or read it all, as you did, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> um, what then, in your experiences of someone that you've worked with or a figure in history, a leader that you, you look up to or have learned from? Uh, well, I mean, we, we just, before this, this podcast started, talked mm-hmm. about the fact that I'm a proper history geek um, and there are actually many 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 fascinating uh leaders in history that i that i certainly look up to i'm i'm not going to take that easy out though and uh, uh I, I think of the people that i know and have met um i would probably say uh clive woodward i mean i, I was lucky enough it's i won't bore you with yeah. the story but we, i was lucky enough to meet clive and we did we've sort of worked done a bit of work together at various mm-hmm. points particularly when i was at gray and I think what's uh, what's interesting about uh, Clive, I think, is he is to try and encapsulate it briefly. Is I, I look at him and he's he's like a human sponge. I mean, he just wants to learn. You know, he he's got a very clear view for himself as to what his leadership style is. And 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 again, I think there isn't a leadership style. You've just got to work out what yours is. He's very clear about his leadership philosophy, but not in a dogmatic way. You know, and so he will I mean he, he will go and talk to anybody anywhere in the world if he thinks they've got something that he can, you know, he can learn from and he's 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 he, he manages I think to combine being very clear and very single-minded mm. with being very open-minded if that makes sense and I, and I think that's a good lesson for us all yeah I've heard him speak a few times especially soon after the World Cup mm. when yeah. he, he went yeah. on the trail and it seems sports coaches and business leaders do have a lot in common is there anything that you think that business managers could learn from coaches well I'll 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 Give you two sort of variations on two two variations on that. Um, the first is that actually I found talking to Clive the most interesting and actually some ways the most relevant piece of his experience was actually when he was director of sport at the Olympics, mm-hmm. um, particularly when you try and c- translate it into a business context, mm-hmm. because there you have twelve disciplines I think um, from you know across the across the mm-hmm. piece, and you have to try and and you are dealing with a large number of people in completely different places doing completely different jobs with different ambitions different levels of 
profile, global celebrities and nobodies in, in the Olympic team. And to try and create, try and lead that group is actually, I think, far more analogous to the challenges you, you find in a business environment, for example. Um, uh, I've already forgotten your question. In answer. Oh, could, translating it into business. Yeah, uh, you're translating it into business. Um, sports coaches, I think I, I tried, I tried and partly failed, but I tried to not do too much sport analogy in the book. I mean, I think you get a lot of, you know, it, you get a lot of, I think, lazy analogies sometimes between sport and business, just as I think you get lazy analogies between politics and business or, or you know, it, it's too easy sometimes, I think, to draw uh, trite conclusions. But I think one of the things that sport does do, or good leaders in sport do, um, is you... Sport is very clarifying in terms of the objectives you're trying to fulfil. So, uh, so, I, and I think that one of the areas of huge bullshit that exists in the business leadership world, certainly, is the whole debate around what you're trying to achieve as a leader. Mm-hmm. And this is where things like visions and values and purposes and all those kind of things come in. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that those things aren't good and useful, but I am saying they're not a prerequisite for success. What you have to do as a leader is def- just simply define what you're trying to achieve. Mm. And I've, I've sat, and I'm sure many of the people listening to this will have sat in leadership teams, where actually the, the, the team begins to believe that actually the defining of the objective is actually the leadership team's task rather than the achieving of the objective. And I've actually sat in teams where they never get beyond trying to come up with some clever redefinition of where they're trying to get to, rather than, think, rather than defining that really in quite simple terms, because I think that is generally not a complicated question to answer. The really, really difficult task for leadership is the getting between where you are and getting to that. And I think in sport, so I, I use the... Um, uh, the uh, Eddie Jones uh, example, for example, when he took over the England rugby team, I mean, he didn't spend time agonising over visions and values and stuff for the team. He just said, we need to win the next World Cup. That's it. Everything we're going to do is about winning the World Cup. Whether he does or not, you can do and, and then, well, well, the point is that he didn't spend any time trying to define where he was trying to get to. His challenge and the thing he'll be measured on is his is his ability to get from where they were to achieving that. And that is the leader's task. Um, and I think that is the thing that, uh, that all leaders can take from sport, that, that the difference between defining the objective, which is generally not that difficult a thing to do, and the getting there, which is what leadership is about. And to you then, what constitutes bullshit leadership? Well, the opposite, pretty well the opposite of everything that I've just said, honestly. I mean, I think that... I think that the, anything that leads to a complexification is that is that a word? Have I, have I just used I some bullshit not. myself? Um, yeah. Have I just added to the, the bullshit quotient? Anything that com- <laughs> anything that makes the subject complicated and that gets in the way of the I think the three the three tasks of the leader, which are one, you have to define where you are, mm. and that is. Again, there's a whole load of business theory about, about that question. It's not a difficult... It really isn't a difficult question. That is a question about how honest are you prepared to be with yourself and the people around you. You cannot fix a problem if you don't understand it and aren't honest about it. One. 
two, so that's stage one. Stage two, you have to define where you're going to get to. We've just talked about that. And then all of your time and energy then really as a leader should be between how I get between those two points. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I suppose bullshit is the opposite. Anything that is the opposite of all of that constitutes bullshit leadership in my opinion. And you can absolutely tell when a leader is making it up as they go along. Yeah. I th- and I think that we all, by, like, by the way, we all do that a bit. I mean, I, th- I think that, uh, that one of the, so, so a question is, for example, okay, great. Okay, Chris, I buy all of that so far. I, I, I buy that. Big question. Okay, so how do I get between those two points? Okay, I mean, that, that's really the question. Um, and I think one of the, um, one of the key, uh, key things leaders have to do is take decisions, right? And... Uh, and I think there's, there's a difference between making up as you go along and being comfortable with ambiguity. So I think that leaders shouldn't just make it up as they go along. You should. That's why it's important to be able to define what it is you're trying to achieve and try and get to. So you've got to chew north, to use a slightly cringy, mm. hackneyed expression. But in order to get there, one of the things you've got to do is you've got to, you as a leader have got to be effective at taking decisions. And you've got to, if, if you have an organisation of any size, more than, I don't know, 20 people or whatever, you also have to have an organisation beyond you that's effective at taking decisions. Um, and I think there you have to, as a leader, get used to living with the degree of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Because I, I always think, like, if, if a decision is, a choice is obvious, if it's 100% certain that left is right and 0% certain that uh, right is wrong or whatever, mm-hmm. then that's not a decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, there isn't a decision to be taken. Um, decisions, some, a choice is only decision if there's, a, if there's a degree of ambiguity, if there's a degree of, a tr- uh, you know, well, maybe that or maybe this. And I think a lot of, a lot of people get bogged down in decision-making because they fear getting decisions wrong. I mean, right. that's, that's why decision-making is difficult. And therefore, they put off making decisions in the hope that in some future point, some enlightenment will arise. And that doesn't happen. And in this day and age of data, big data, mm, mm, plenty mm, of data, mm, 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 how, how does that then factor into your decision-making and how much do you personally think gut should still be important? Uh, I can't. I can't quantify. I think you you have to you have to use. Well, I, I'll give you. So Colin Powell, who was the uh, you know the U.S. general, I think, and states statesman, um, he had his forty seventy rule, and I'm going to have a go at quoting it. So his rule said basically, um, don't make a decision if you're less than forty percent certain, but if you wait until you're more than seventy percent certain, you've waited too long. And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. So really what he's... He's saying a number of things in that. First of all, he's saying, get used to ambiguity. Get used to living in that 40-70 zone. Okay? And he's also, if you're being very literal about it... I mean, I did a degree in engineering, so I'm a a literal person. Being very literal about it, he's saying, accept that 30% are going to be wrong. I mean, that's... Or or at least imperfect. I mean, I think think imperfect is a better better way of looking at it than uh, wrong. So I think as a... Not just as a leader, but but, but anybody who who need... We all need to make decisions. Mm. Um, And I think inevitably, you know, you need to use a balance of... uh, Obviously, if you've got... If you have information, use the information. It is rare that that information gives you unambiguous... 
um, direction. If it gives you an ambiguous direction, job done, move on, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, to, you have to be smart about where you're getting information from. You have to use experience. You have to listen to people around you. Um, and you have to, you have to, I guess, use your gut, if that's the right expression, and just, just get through it. Because I think what, you, what, what a leader has to do is rebalance what they're most worried about. So, so you could, rather than worrying about in the imperfection of the decision-making process, accept that it is imperfect. Because there's nothing you're going to do that changes its imperfection. It's always going to be imperfect. You're always going to make decisions that you might look back on and say, I would have done that differently. That's just going to happen. So liberate yourself from that worry. And actually, if you're going to worry about something, worry about not making enough decisions fast enough. And I think that's the way you need to approach it. Um, one of the conversations that we're having more and more, uh, thankfully, in the industry, uh, the advertising mm. industry, is how do we help improve the diversity and equality mm. issue mm. that still exists? Yeah, yeah. How do you, as a leader here within Havas, yeah, yeah. try to make a difference? I think this, uh, you can fit this, uh, I mean, and it is, it is a huge challenge, it's not just a challenge for um, our industry, it's a challenge for, it's a societal challenge, at least partly. Um, and, well, not partly, it is. Uh, and I think that the first thing that you need to do, and certainly the thing that we try and do, is, is to try and really understand in some detail what the specifics of the problem you're trying to solve are. So people use the word diversity and the words uh, diversity and inclusion, for example. But that's a really, really big space. Um, uh, you know, uh, and, and if I, if when we looked at our business and said, of course, what we want to do is we want to create an environment where, where people, no matter what their background, no matter what their colour, their sexuality, their gender, can get right to the top of their company, can come here, can feel like they belong, can perform brilliantly. That's our objective, if you like. Um, the, the start point, though, so you go, okay, that's where we want to get to, where, is our, where, do we, where are we starting from? And I think each of those, uh, even, e- I was going to say each of those groups, but, but even all of those questions boil down to individual people. Um, you know, all women aren't the same, uh, for, for example. I mean, so obviously. And so what, we, what we've done is we spend quite a lot of time understanding where, where we are, where we are underrepresented, where our workforce is underrepresented. Uh, what positions that is that what positions that those underrepresentations occur within our organization mm-hmm. and and be try and be quite specific about how we try and solve those so for example, like a lot of um, companies certainly a lot of agencies I would imagine, we actually employ more women than men in the uk so let, talk, let, let's keep this debate to the uk yeah. for example because I have more data specifically for the uk so we employ more women than men um, but we have far less women in senior management positions. I mean, this is a familiar, uh, this isn't breaking news to anybody. But therefore, the, the challenge we're trying to solve is how do we get women from being, um, if you like, senior managers, where we're reasonably equally represented, into executive level positions? And what, what are the barriers? What are the problems? And there's not a sim- sim- single answer to that. There's multiple things we need to do to solve that. The challenge there, so the challenge isn't how do we go and employ more women? Because we already have equal workforce. In uh, that said, in um, with BAME, for example, we believe that we are, just as an organisation, BAME people are underrepresented in our organisation. So we, we have a different challenge to solve there. We have to make ourselves attractive um, to those different, to different communities and, and, and try and reach out and try and work out what the barriers to those people thinking 
of us or is it that we are bad at recruiting or whatever it is so so really what we've tried to do is break those i mean you can't break every problem down to an individual person by person level but try and we've tried not to frankly this i think one of the challenges around this debate is i i, I sometimes feel like people people search for simple or simplistic solutions and I don't think there are I think there isn't a single simple solution to that question I think there's a whole multiple array of things we need to do and we've tried the best we can to break that down into into its component parts so the way I think about it for example um is if and this is seem pretty obvious um is to talk about um recruit promote and retain and so if if we uh and they you know if we are doing a good job uh at recruitment and by that i mean if we are re- if we have our recruitment processes right we should be recruiting at all levels through our company um a a diverse group of people one two we have to work out are we retaining those people so a classic example would be um women coming back from maternity leave you know how good are we at at when people come back they can still come back and we can find ways to work and within the environment so those people can thrive um because if we lo- you know if if we lose 50% of our best people because they don't come back after maternity leave we are you know we're failing so so and it's not just that point but that's an obvious point around around retention and then equally promotion you know uh, i mean the way that we are going to not just recruit from a diverse group a diverse group of people but ensure those people have fruitful careers right the way through the company we've got to make sure that our promotion how we promote people again are the bar- are the things we're doing wrong and the things we need to do better at that stage as well so I mean, we're very much long answer start. to the question, yeah. but it's a complicated question. But it's very much a start, isn't it? I feel. Oh, I, I, honestly, it, we've made a start, mm-hmm. um, and it's. I think it's a. It's a. It's a big. I, I think it's a big. Comp, it's a big complicated challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, for example, uh, people from uh, socially disadvantaged backgrounds. Or, I mean, working class people, for example. I mean, our industry is that working class people are massively underrepresented mm-hmm. in our industry, and yet. Uh, our industry is a creative industry and uh, you know working class communities huge amounts of creativity has and does come from those communities why aren't why aren't those people working in our industry um so i mean the, the diversity and inclusion piece is a, is a huge topic and uh, and, and I, my start point though is uh, that i genuinely and fundamentally profoundly believe that if we if we are a truly i actually think with the we we should call it inclusion and diversity because i think actually if you create an environment right. an inclusive environment that's a big a huge step towards uh towards solve towards at least solving part of the problems mm. but I, but i i genuinely believe that if we get it right if you can get it right or certainly get become better <laughs> um we will be a better business you know and i think also partly in the past possibly um some businesses or uh, have sort of treated it as a little bit of a almost like almost like a CSR mm-hmm. kind of issue and i uh, you know and i don't think it's a question that belongs with the hr department or at least doesn't belong wholly with the hr mm-hmm. department you know it's the it's the leader's job yeah. to resolve that and 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 the leader not only i think does a leader have a moral responsibility and it's sort of a societal responsibility because business you know i think business plays a critical part in the health of a society but i also think if you get it right you're a better business mm-hmm. uh what would be the leadership lesson 
that you wish you had learned before now or earlier? Um, I think the, I think it's more. Uh, I, I remember when I first got made um, a CEO, a CEO of an agency, which was about ten, about ten years ago now. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, I I be, I had been in leadership positions for many years before that. You know, when I was account director, I had two I had people working for me, and by my other definition, that made me a leader of sorts. Mm-hmm. But it but it wasn't really until I became a CEO that I actually I actually thought about what leadership is. You know, I I hadn't actually mm-hmm. thought about it. I sort of just like bumbled along a little bit and and I and I think part of being a good leader is sort of to an extent being a self-aware leader and by self-aware I mean maybe that's not quite the right phrase but but I mean actually having a point of view of your own as to what leadership is and how you're going to try and do it so I think it, it, you know, just the act of doing that, I think, makes you a better leader. Um, and I think, I think uh, if I had thought about that earlier, I think I'd have been a better leader earlier. I see what you mean, because a lot of people, until they're in a position of responsibility, probably don't no. think about, well, what do I, how, how do I lead a team? Yeah. So yeah. the earlier, probably the better leader. Yeah. Well, and, and not only that, but good leaders, the, the best way to develop good leaders in your organisation is to have good leaders in your organisation. <laughs> I mean, that, that, for sure, that's true. <laughs> and so, um, you know, if you're, an account man- if you're an account manager, let's say, <clears throat> no matter how great or incredible or wonderful the organisation you work within, the most important person in your life is your account director. And if your account director is a rubbish leader... Um, you're going to have a rubbish time. Uh, and so, you know, organisations have, have an interest, I think, in trying to create good leadership at all levels. Chris, good luck with the book. Thank you very much. Remind our listeners where they can, where they can find uh, it. No bullshit leadership. Uh, available on Amazon, available in WA Smiths, available in Waterstones. Go buy it, leave a review. On Amazon. <laughs> on Amazon, exactly. Or anywhere else. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you.